We pick up the story this week in Numbers chapter 13 and Deuteronomy chapter 1. They both tell the same story. The Israelites have made camp at Kadesh in the wilderness of Paran. This is basically a dry riverbed that's occasionally subject to violent flash floods. And it's roughly 100 miles long, and it runs from the top eastern part of the Sinai Peninsula up to the Negev Desert. So they're getting really close to the promised land, just south of the Negev. So Moses tells the Israelite soldiers to go on, go on in and take the land. But the fighting men are scared, and they convince Moses to send spies ahead to scout out the land so they know what they're facing. See the problem? They don't see it as the Lord facing their challenges. They see it as them facing their challenges. They're still only trusting in their own power. Bowing to their will, Moses has each tribe pick one of their best chieftains. And here's a list of the 12 tribes that provided men. Do you notice anything weird about the list? The tribe of Joseph has sent two scouts, one from the half-tribe of Ephraim and one from the half-tribe of Manasseh. Remember that these were Joseph's twin boys that Jacob adopted on his deathbed. So if you count each of these as a tribe and you have 12 tribes total, we must be missing one somewhere. And we're right. We're missing the tribe of Levi. They don't send a scout. We're beginning to see how the tribe of Levi is often treated differently than the other tribes. They, as you know, are the Lord's portion in Israel. They're the ones given to the Lord to stand in the place of all the firstborn sons of Israel. As such, they will neither fight for nor receive a portion of land in the promised land. They're to be entirely dependent on their their portion of the tithes and offerings the people give to the Lord. So here's a new tool for your backpack. From now on, whenever you see a list of the 12 tribes of Israel, pay attention to which tribes are listed. It will give you an idea of whether the passage is primarily focused on the land, in which case the Levites will not be listed, or whether the passage is focused on spiritual or legal or other matters, in which case the Levites will be listed. And sometimes later on, we'll see other configurations. And when that happens, we'll pay close attention to the implications of the list. So Moses tells the scouts to go up through the Negev, presumably following the Paran riverbed. He instructs them to make their way north and scout both the land and the people. And he tells the scouts to bring back some of the produce of the land. The scouts are gone for 40 days, a long time. They scout all the way from the wilderness of Zin at the southern edge of the Negev up to a location north of the Sea of Galilee. As they come back to the Israelite camp, the scouts bring pomegranates, dates, and a cluster of grapes that is so large they have to bear it on poles between two men. All the people gather around to hear their report to Moses. The scouts say they're astonished at the fruitfulness of the land. It is indeed a land flowing with milk and honey. But the people in the land? That's another story entirely. 
They already knew their cousins, the Edomites, the descendants of Esau, lived southeast of the Dead Sea. But the scouts found the dreaded Amalekites, the ones who've already attacked them, living in the Negev, southwest of the Dead Sea. The Hittites, the Amorites, and the Jebusites all live in the high country. The Hittites are scattered all over, but tend to be more in the north. The Jebusites live nearer to Jerusalem, and the Amorites are mostly to the east of the Jordan. The Canaanites live in the low country on both sides, near the sea and in the Jordan Valley. The towns in the Promised Land are much larger and much more fortified than the scouts had expected. And even worse, there are Nephilim living there. Remember them? Those are the giants, the legendary descendants of the mating of women and angels from Genesis 6. The scouts say, we saw them with our very own eyes, and we're like grasshoppers next to them. This scares the people to death. They begin complaining against Moses and Aaron, saying, we might as well have died in Egypt. The Lord brought us here to perish by the sword. Our women and children will be carried off. Come on, let's pick another leader and go back to Egypt before we're all killed. But Moses says, don't be afraid of them. The Lord your God is going before you. He will fight for you now, just as he did in Egypt. And Joshua and Caleb, two of the scouts, plead with the people saying, remember that the land is really amazing. God himself has brought us here to give this land to us. The Lord is not with them. The Lord is with us. They have no protection. Do not fear them. But the people don't want to hear it. They get so angry with Joshua and Caleb that they begin to gather stones to stone them to death. At that very moment, the Lord intervenes. His glory appears over the tent of meeting so that all the Israelites can see it. And the Lord says to Moses, how long will these people despise me? How long will they not trust me? What do I have to do? Get out of my way, Moses, so I can strike them and dispossess them. I will make you a great nation instead of them. And Moses says, you do that and the Egyptians will hear about it. They've already heard that you live among us and that your cloud and fire stand over us and lead us. They'll say that you aren't strong enough to do what you promised. They'll only see that you slaughtered your people in the wilderness. Remember that you are kind and slow to anger, abounding in patience. Please forgive these people their great crime against you. And the Lord says, all right. I've forgiven them as you have asked, but my glory will fill all the earth. And because these people have seen my glory and my signs and all I have done for them in the wilderness and yet have still despised me, all of the adults, 20 years old or older, will never see the promised land. They will all die here in the wilderness, except for Caleb and Joshua. For 40 years, the Israelites will become herdsmen in the desert. One year for every day, the promised land was scouted. And after the adults die, I will bring their children into the promised land. 
The people, of course, start weeping and wailing and saying, we must go up to take the promised land now, just as the Lord told us to do in the first place. And Moses says, are you crazy? The Lord is not with you anymore. You'll be going to your death if you do this. But some of the people go anyway, and the Amalekites and the Canaanites annihilate them. After that fiasco, the Lord tells the people, make a blue fringe for the edges of your garments so that every time you see it, you will remember all of my commandments and you will do them. It will remind you not to go whoring after whatever your heart desires or your eyes see. The blue fringe will remind you that you are holy and I am your God. You'd think that'd be the end of it. But of course it isn't. Three men named Korah, Dathan, and Abiram, along with about 250 of the chieftains and leaders, stage a coup against Moses. They repeat exactly what Aaron and Miriam had said earlier. You take too much power for yourself, Moses. All of the people are holy. The Lord dwells among all of us. You'd think they'd remember what happened to Miriam, but no. Well, one of the men, Korah, is a Levite, and Moses says to him and the men with him, shame on you. Is it not enough that the Lord has chosen the Levites as his own? Is it not enough to work in the tabernacle? Must you also be priests now instead of Aaron? All of you, prepare your censers full of coals with incense and come before the Lord tomorrow morning. The Lord will choose between us. But Dathan and Abiram refused to come, saying, Who are you to lord it over us? You haven't done a single thing you promised. We're not in the land you promised. No one has any fields or vineyards. And boy, does that make Moses mad. He says to the Lord, I haven't taken one blessed thing from them. I have done them no harm. Do not accept their offerings. So the next morning, Korah the Levite and all his men bring their censers and stand at the entrance of the tent of meeting, 255 men in total. And Aaron brings his censer as well, while all the Israelites look on. Dathan and Abiram don't bring censers, but they and their families gather at the entrances of their tents to see what happens. At that moment, the Lord's glory appears to all the Israelites, and the Lord says to Moses and Aaron, Step away from the people. I'm about to destroy them all. But Moses and Aaron fall on their faces and say, El, God of the breath and all living things, will you destroy the entire community? For the sin of Korah? And the Lord answers, Tell the people to move away from where Korah, Dathan, Abiram, and their families are standing. All the people scramble backwards in fear. And Moses says, By this you shall know that the Lord himself has sent me. It was not my own ambition. These people will not die a natural death. The ground is about to open up and swallow them, for they have despised the Lord. And as he finishes speaking, the ground beneath the rebels splits apart and swallows them all and then closes back up again. 
and the Israelites turn and run. Nothing is left except a burnt out space and rubble. And the Lord says, tell Eliezer, Aaron's son, to sift through the rubble and find all of the censers. For the censers are holy. Those men paid for them with their lives. Hammer them into sheets as plating for the altar to remind the people that no one other than the descendants of Aaron must come before me to burn incense. As the people come back, a mob begins to form, murmuring against Moses and Aaron, saying, You've put to death the Lord's people. Again, the Lord speaks from the cloud, saying, Step away from these people, Moses and Aaron, so I can put an end to them this instant. Moses falls on his face to intercede and says to Aaron, Quick, take your censer and fill it with coal from the altar and put incense on it and run to the midst of the people to atone for them, for the Lord's fury is already among them. Aaron quickly does, as Moses says, and as he runs among the people, he sees a plague has already started among them. And Aaron takes a stand between the dead and the living, and the plague stops where he is standing. More than 14,000 people die that day. Afterwards, the Lord says to Moses, Have each tribe bring a staff from their chieftains, 12 in all, with the names of their tribes written on them. And you write Aaron's name on the staff of the tribe of Levi. Lay all 12 staffs down in front of the Ark of the Covenant. The staff of the man I choose will come to life and will flower, and then the people will murmur against you no more. And so it happens that on the next day, when Moses enters the tent, he sees all the staffs lying there exactly as he left them, except for Aaron's staff. It has grown flowers, has blossomed, and has produced almonds. Well, that's enough for the people. They surrender. And the Lord says, Take Aaron's staff and put it inside the Ark of the Covenant with the manna as a sign to remind rebellious people so that in the future they will not be tempted and die. And the Lord says, from now on, only the Levites, the priests, and Moses may come near to the tent of meeting. This way, the Israelites will not die from their offenses. So that's a pretty dramatic story. And it was a major turning point in my understanding of God many years ago. It gave me the key to understand that all this death in the Hebrew Bible happened because of bringing evil into the presence of the holiness of God. It was those two verses in number 16 that opened my eyes. You see, I noticed that what started this disaster was the censors brought by men with pride and rebellion in their hearts. But after the Lord's fire consumed them and the earth swallowed the men and their families, the censors themselves were holy. And if the censors were holy, how much more so would the men and their families be holy? Could our Lord care more for a piece of metal than for the human spirit? Of course not. These people had paid for their sin with their lives, and in the eyes of the Lord, their evil was completely consumed, and now they were holy. They did not go to hell. 
they went to the Lord. This laid my soul out flat when I realized it. The awe and, I don't know, I guess the appreciation and gratitude I felt for the Lord making this possible bowled me over. And it makes so much sense that the Lord is simply setting things right. He's bringing these people back to himself in the only way possible. This gave me so much hope for me, for the world, for the nations, and lots of pieces in the Bible that I had not understood before began to click into place. So take this and ponder it for yourself. Watch for the Lord doing things like this as we move forward in the Bible. Even if we do not repent, we may forfeit our lives here on earth, but the Lord redeems our souls. And that sounds like heresy. How can the Lord redeem us if we do not repent first? Can he do that? Well, it sure looks like it here, doesn't it? So think about this story carefully. Ask the Lord about it, and then hold it in the back of your mind. We'll come back to it as we run across more evidence in Scripture. In fact, that's another new tool for your backpack. If something is an attribute of God, you will find it running as a theme throughout the Bible. It won't be just one verse or one story somewhere. Look for the themes rather than cherry-picking a verse here or there. Dying is, of course, not the only way for the Israelites to become holy. There's the whole system of sacrifices for that. In fact, the Lord goes to great lengths to keep them from dying. Numbers 19 adds a new sacrifice in which a red heifer is sacrificed in a particular way outside the camp, and her ashes are kept outside the camp for use in making people clean, especially after they've had to touch a dead body. The Lord makes all sorts of ways for the Israelites to be clean and holy. The Israelites have now come to the very edge of the Negev Desert, the southern border of the Promised Land. And here in the wilderness of Zin, Miriam dies. And in this desert, the people begin to run out of water again. I know it's hard to believe, but another mob forms saying, Why didn't you let us die when the Lord was killing us with the plague? Why did you even bring us out here in the desert to die? Why why didn't you just leave us in Egypt? And Moses and Aaron fall on their faces at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And the Lord says, both of you, take Moses' staff and go out to the rock. Speak to it in front of the people. And it will gush enough water for the people and all their animals. So Moses and Aaron gather the people in front of the rock. And then Moses does a terrible thing. Something he knows better than to do. I guess his temper and exasperation with the people get the best of him. And he says, listen, you rebellious people. Shall Aaron and I bring water out of this rock for you? And he raises his staff and strikes the water, um, strikes the rock twice and the water gushes out. The Lord is faithful to do as he promised, but Moses has set himself up in God's place, hasn't he? Shall Aaron and I bring forth water from this rock? This goes completely counter to all the work God has done with these people. Moses is no better than anybody else. He just happens to be the one God has chosen to work through. 
Certainly, God loves him dearly. But Moses cannot be holding himself up as the source of the power and provision for the people. He's already in that precarious position of the people seeing him as their leader rather than God. God has been fighting so hard to get the people to understand that all that's happening to them is God's doing, not Moses. The Lord calls Aaron and Moses to himself and says, because you have done this, neither of you will be allowed to lead the people into the promised land. What a bitter pill this must be for Moses. The Lord has mercifully spared his life, but oh, how he must long to enter the promised land. But notice, there's no question at all in Moses' mind about why this is happening. The Lord is very clear. Don't let people tell you that bad things happen to you because the Lord is punishing you. If you don't know for sure what you are rebelling over, and if the Lord hasn't told you explicitly that this is the consequence, then don't accept the guilt. God's way is not the way of guilt. God's way is to cleanse us from evil so we can draw closer to him. And his way is always, always merciful. And so here at Kadesh, these waters come to be called Meribah, which means quarreling, because here the Israelites quarrel with the Lord, and the Lord is proven as holy. If the Israelites go west of the Dead Sea through the Negev, they'll end up in the hill country west of the Jordan River. Alternatively, they could go through Edom, where their cousins, the descendants of Esau, have settled. That way, they could travel the King's Highway east of the Jordan River. That might be an easier trip. So Moses sends messengers to the King of Edom, asking for the permission to pass through. Moses promises that the Israelites will not trample any fields or take any water from any well, but will travel strictly along the King's Highway. But the King of Edom refuses them passage, even though the Edomites are their cousins. In fact, he says, if you even try to come through our land, we will march out and attack you. And the Edomites bring their entire army out and stand, barring the highway. This is a terrible sin and one that will end up having disastrous repercussions for the Edomites later. The Lord has a long memory for things like this. Here at Mount Harun, on the border of Edom, it comes time for Aaron to die. The Lord tells Moses to take Aaron and his son Eliezer up on the mountain and there to transfer the vestments of the high priest to Eliezer. And when the people hear that Aaron has died, the whole community mourns for 30 days. There's a different story of his death in Deuteronomy 10.6, if you want to read it. It's just a quick mention with completely different de details. Since they cannot move north along the king's highway, the Israelites are going to have to go west. But as they approach the Canaanite settlement of Arad, they're attacked and some of the Israelites are captured. And the Israelites swear to the Lord, if you will deliver these people into our hands, we promise to utterly destroy their cities, just like you told us, to keep us from being tempted into idol worship. And so it is done. 
After that, the pillar of cloud and fire begins to move backwards towards the desert. The desert? The people get very upset. There's no bread. There's no water out there. We hate this manna. Why did you bring us out of Egypt? Here we go again. Will these people never learn? This time, instead of a plague, the Lord sends venomous snakes and many people die. Eventually, the people repent and come to Moses and ask him to intercede for them. So Moses prays for the people. And the Lord tells him to make a bronze snake and put it on a pole where all the people can see it. Anyone who is bitten can look up at the bronze snake and be healed. That is such a weird, weird story. Why a snake? I mean, obviously it's the snakes that are the problem. But why a snake on a pole as the cure? There's no explanation. But the story is important. It's referred to several times in scripture, and we need to think about it. So first off, remember the cherubim that are always right beside God? They're the winged creatures God had the Israelites fashion in gold on the mercy seat. They're described in scripture a couple of times. You can read about them in Ezekiel chapter 1 and chapter 10. They move wherever the Holy Spirit moves. They've got spherical wheels, thousands of eyes all over them, multiple wings, multiple faces, and they hold the fire of the Lord. They're always right there at his heavenly throne. They're pretty terrifying. I think they're a physical representation of God's holiness, and that's why they're so terrifying. In another place in scripture where they're described, in Isaiah chapter 6, they're called seraphim, rather than by their normal name of cherubim. It's not that seraphim are something different than cherubim. The word seraphim is simply a description of them. Seraphim in Hebrew means serpent. The cherubim are somehow in the basic form of serpents or maybe dragons, if you want a visual that's closer to what's being described here. There are two words for serpent in Hebrew. One is this one, seraphim. The other is nakash. In our passage in Numbers, the word seraphim is translated as fiery serpents and is used in verses 6 and 8. The Lord sends seraphim in verse 6 and tells Moses to make a seraph and put it on a pole in verse 8. The remaining verses in this passage use the other more common word for snake, nakash. Unfortunately, we lose this distinction in most of our English translations. The people and the narrator of the story use the word snakes. The Lord uses the word seraphim. And it makes perfect sense to me that the seraphim, this embodiment of God's holiness, the very movement of the Holy Spirit, the holder of his refining fire, is the symbol that the Lord wants crafted in bronze and placed where the Israelites can look on it and be healed. It's like having part of the Holy of Holies among them, where they can see it whenever they need it. This whole incident is talked about by Jesus later. 
What light can Jesus shed on our understanding of this seraph on a pole in the middle of the desert? Let's explore that question in our breakout groups. So I'm hoping you found this really interesting. So the first question was, the cherubim and the cherubim and seraphim are truly terrifying in scripture, like serpents with multiple wings and faces of many creatures and thousands of eyes and spherical wheels that contain fire and move wherever the Holy Spirit moves. These are the real thing up in heaven, you know, not, not, not the sculpture of them. If the bronze serpent on the pole is actually meant to represent the cherubim seraphim, what is God saying to the people? Well, we discussed that possibly it was like um, God was saying that, you know, I'm here, I'm healing you. Um, like, remember me. Yeah. Yeah. Other ideas? Well, Barb's not unmuting, but she had one that I thought was really good. So you want to, you want to share what you were saying about the eyes and the face, Barb? Um, well, the, the image of the, the many creatures, thousands of eyes, multiple wings. It's like the, when we think of God as, as uh, omniscient, all seeing and omnipotent, all powerful. I mean, it's kind of like he's everywhere. He's everywhere. So, um, that, uh, you know, just that to re again, as a reminder, I think Renee said a reminder that, um, they are, uh, you know, that he's there and that he's, he's in charge. Yeah, this is a symbol to the people, uh, you know, they could always look to, um, and it didn't require, uh, a mediator or intermediary, uh, like a lot of the previous occurrences have with Moses and Aaron. Um, I kind of joked like it was a, a kind of a, I kind of call it a look up or shut up kind of thing. <laughs> you know, <laughs> you know if, you, if, if you have a problem, you, you, you know, you need to, th this is for you to, to believe that it will uh, heal you. Otherwise, you know, good luck to you. <laughs> That's isn't the isn't the uh, serpent on the pole? Doesn't it serve a very similar purpose to uh, the cross for Christians? It just when we see it, it's a reminder. It's a reminder of of, of what we believe, and uh, and from there, you know how we should act. Yeah, and and that that Jesus is present, right? You know. Yeah. Um, and yeah. everything that means. And that's probably a good segue into the second question. In the second question, I put in the scripture passage from John 3, the first 17 verses. And we all know this passage because this is where that famous John 3, 16 verse is. For God so loved the world, you know, that he gave his only begotten son. Um, and and uh, it's in the middle of a story of a man... Uh, named Nicodemus, who is a member of the leading Jewish ruling council there, you know, um, in, in Jerusalem. And he uh, was a sympathizer with Jesus. He thought Jesus had some very good points. And so he was um, unfortunately working for an organization that was threatened by Jesus and was doing everything they could to squelch Jesus. So poor old Nicodemus, the only way he could get his questions answered was to sneak out at night 
and uh, go ask Jesus his questions. And so, and his question to Jesus was, you know, I, I know that we're trying to squelch you, but actually we all know you came from God um, because you couldn't do the things you're doing unless God were with you. And, and, um, and Jesus in his cryptic manner said, yeah, you know, I, I, I will say to you that um, only the people who are born again are the ones who are, who can actually see somebody I can, somebody needs to mute. I can hear talking in the background. Um, Sorry. Oh, that's okay. Only the people um, who are born again can actually see the kingdom of heaven all around them. And that like totally confuses Nicodemus. It's like, what, what are you talking about? That's not what I was talking about. What are you talking about? And, um, and, and Jesus says, well, you know, you, you have to be born again. And, and, and Nicodemus says, I don't even get that. How can, how can somebody be born over a second time? And Jesus said, you know, you're talking about physical being born. And I'm talking about being born at, in the spirit, who you really are. There's a birth process to that too. I don't think we think about that very often, that there's a birth process to our spirit that is separate and different and as important as the birth process for our body. So um, Nicodemus says, well, I, I don't get that. And, and Jesus says, and you're a leader of the people, you're a religious leader and you don't, (laughs) (laughs) you know, and, and, and he says, you know, we can only speak as a teacher. You can only teach what you know, what you have experienced. And he says, I have only talked to you about things of earth and you don't get those. And if I start talking to you about things of the spirit and you haven't even started the birthing process of your spirit, how are you going to know what I'm talking about? And therefore, how are you going to lead the people? And Jesus says, you know, no one has gone through this whole spirit process from birthing the spirit all the way through to going all the way to heaven, into heaven not only just this kingdom of heaven where we are, but in heaven with God, no one's done that except me. No one's done the whole process except me. And he said, and just like Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so I must be lifted up so that everyone who believes can have eternal life. And he doesn't just say that we can have eternal life. He says that we can have eternal life in him. It's like he's our container somehow. For God so loved the world, he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. So it's crazy and we never talk about the fact really that Jesus used as the parable of who he is for us in this greatest of all passages almost in the New Testament he used as the parallel 
this whole thing about the, the snake on the pole in the wilderness. So what did you guys come up with in answer to the question of, given the context you now have for the bronze seraph, what is Jesus saying here? We could have been off, but some of us thought, you know, we get busy in our daily lives and we need something to draw us back to remembering that we need to focus on Christ. And the people in the wilderness had that same problem, you know? Yep. Even though God was always there and present, I mean, the temple and the Holy of Holies and the meeting places and the clouds, he was always there. The people kept forgetting him and would start going, well, we might as well go back to Egypt. That's better. Um, and I think it was finally God was like, okay, what can I do to get through to these people to remember I'm here? And he came up with the serpent on the snake because they needed something that they could see all the time to remind them that, you know, who God was and God had their back and that it wasn't about them or Moses or Aaron or anyone else. It was about God himself. And I think Jesus is saying the same thing. It's not about people, somebody telling you about God. You have to listen to what God says mm -hmm. and what I say, and I will take care of you. We mentioned that it was interesting, or somebody in our group mentioned that it was interesting that the serpent was put on a cross to be held up. And, we don't really um, know that it was on a cross. That was just the picture. Oh, that's just the way they always picture it. Oh, okay. Because yeah. well, what I wrote down um, when they were talking about that is that the serpent or the seraphim on the stick or cross or whatever it was being held up gave them hope. Yes. And our hope is from the fact that Jesus was on the cross. Yeah. When we look to the cross for our hope. And I had to look it up. It was driving me nuts. The word I was looking for is type. Oh, yeah. He's a type. And it says and that in the New Testament, Paul uses that word. He's, he, he calls him a type, type of Adam. Adam. Yep. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> like, how could I not remember that word? It's such a tiny little word. I think that it's also interesting, um, back to what Renee was saying, um, that it was to remind the people, you know, to look up and, and that God was always there is, is that they, they need, they kept forgetting God and they needed these snakes biting them on their heels all the time to get them to remember, to look up at the, the, the seraph on the pole, to look to God, you know, to God's power, to acknowledge God, that their healing would come from God. That is in kind of a, a visual of exactly what fasting does for us. Fasting you know, and, is a sorry. way to, to it's, it's, it, those hunger pangs are intended to drive us to remember to look to God. That's the point of it. I'm sorry, Barb, I stepped yeah. in. That's okay. In our group, uh, Gordon, who has left the picture, um, he brought up, you know, we, we also brought up the fact that this, this image 
um, is uh, very similar to the medical profession, the rod of Asclepius and, uh, and um, the caduceus, which represent healing. And, you know, the snake around the rod and um, everything. So uh, it just, it, like I said, it represents healing and so forth. So, and I'm with, uh, with Rhonda. I have to go now. So okay. sayonara, y'all. Yeah, and it is uh, time, time to finish up. And um, I do have some closing comments for you. Uh, and, and then, of course, we can continue talking if you want to do that. But whenever you see evil dressed up, as something good or as something very powerful, don't be sucked in and don't be overwhelmed by it. Remember that it's a counterfeit. It's taken something extremely good and extremely powerful of God's, which is always for our benefit and has twisted it into something that's harmful and death dealing. So when you see that counterfeit, Always look for what God's reality is. Look for the powerful and good reality that evil is trying to copy. If you remember all the way back to Genesis 3, it opened with the snake, that common Hebrew word, Nakash, tempting Eve and telling her lies about God. That was evil dressed up as something good. But Genesis 3 ends with the Lord setting the seraphim slash cherubim at the entrance of the garden to guard the way to the tree of life. And I don't think the bookends of corresponding imagery in this chapter are an accident. In Numbers 21, when the people despise the Lord, he sends fiery snakes among them, literally seraphim. And the snakes are extremely harmful and death-dealing. And when Moses prays, the Lord tells him to set up a seraph on a pole for the healing of other people. Obviously, the bronze snake was not a real seraph. It's just a symbol of the reality God was providing. All the Israelites had to do was understand that God could and would heal them, that God was the source and sustainer of their life. All they had to do was look to him. I've pointed you today to God's reality in this story, not to that snake on the pole, but to God's utter holiness, to the source of the fire that bursts out from the Lord. The, the fire that is held by the seraphim. It's not evil or destructive. It's purifying and powerful. It's the embodiment and action of holiness. Even in the story of the rebellion of Karad, Dathan, and Abiram, the fire consumed their evil, leaving only burnt ground after they were swallowed up. That fire made them holy. They had grabbed onto a counterfeit power, and the Lord answered with the reality. This is not so much a tool for interpreting scripture as it is a tool for understanding the nature of good and evil. Rather than this being a tool for your backpack, this is more like a walking stick. It's an important aid in your journey. 2 Corinthians 11.14 tells us that Satan masquerades as an angel of light. He makes himself look good. 
he clothes himself in power. But his intent is to do us harm. Always realize that no matter how good or powerful evil seems, it's a counterfeit. It's always lesser than God. There's always a much more powerful reality in God. Evil copies something of God's that is intended for our benefit. So when evil confronts you, stop and look for God's corresponding reality. It will be there. It will be accessible to you simply for the asking, and it will be life-giving. Thank you, Gail. That's good stuff. Thank you. Absolutely. So think on okay, this. Okay, Gail, thing. can I ask? Mm -hmm. Go ahead. No, no, I, go ahead. I was just going to say, think on these things, you know, and turn them over. This is the stuff that we talked about in class is not stuff that's clear in scripture. So this is just, uh, I'm just offering you a, uh, a way to put the pieces together um, that makes sense to me. And you may find a, a way that's better. What were you saying, Shirley? I just have a really off the wall question that doesn't necessarily have to do with the lesson. <laughs> so, um, but something that when you talked about the seraphim or the, um, how do you pronounce it? I always say cherubim. cherubim. It's the, it, the, the CH is actually a K sound. And I right, like on the end in Hebrew is always pronounced im. So cherubim. When you were talking about that, I was thinking, you know, um, always in, people will say, well, such and such is talked about in the Bible and we've never found evidence of it in history or science or whatever. And, um, then sometime later on that thing will be found or, you know, bones of that thing or whatever will be found. And then people are like, Oh, it really did exist. The Bible was telling the truth, you know? <laughs> and I've, I've seen cases of that throughout my lifetime. And, you know, in mythology, in, in every culture, there are some reference to dragons, fire breathing dragons or, you know, whatever kind of dragons, and everybody, you know, just says that's a mythological creature. It's not anything that really existed or anything like that. But most things that are in mythology had some kind of origin, something that um, spurred them to be thought of, you know, to be created or whatever. And um, it, it never dawned on me until today when you were giving the description and then they showed the picture and stuff. And I'm like, people saw these things. The, the Caribbean, the Caribbean, mm -hmm. the Seraphim, the various kinds of angels made appearances. Um, Ezekiel saw the wheel way up in the sky. You know, there, a lot of people think that's like UFOs, you know, that, he saw this thing in the sky. That's like, compar comparatively, that's like a UFO. And I'm like, all of a sudden it dawned on me, like all these creatures, all these dragons that come into, you know, old English lore and all these probably initiated with somebody seeing these seraphim. It could and be. Uh, there's certainly, um, 
you, if you look across all the religions um, worldwide um, over history, you find a lot of similarities. And I've pointed out some of them to you, although I've confined um, as to the time period that we're, that we're working, right. you know, but that time period and, and before and in that region where they might have heard of them. Um, but, right. but I think spiritual truths are spiritual truths forever and ever across all of humanity. I think yeah. that wherever we are, we relate those to our current context and to our own experience. And we come up with different words for them and different ways to describe them. Yeah. But from one human to another, we recognize those things in someone else's story because they originated, yeah. as you said, in truth. So I'm not um, trying to, you know, go way off in left field and say, well, these are dragons. Well, that's why I said it was way you know? off, yeah. <laughs> off the wall. Yeah, I'm, I'm not going to, you know, sit here and say that, that these are dragons and those are unicorns. You know, I'm not going to do that. But I will say I can see that representation of something that looks like that, that has that kind of terror, um, that, that is that big, um, I understand whatever we're trying to call it and whatever shape we're giving it and whatever name we give it. Um, there is a reality in heaven. And I'm just, I was just offering the word dragon and the, as a visual, I was just offering it as a visual so that you get a sense of what Ezekiel and, and Isaiah were trying to describe. Um, I'm not necessarily saying they are one in the same thing. Who knows? Bye, Whitney. I was going to mention that, like Barb said at the end before she left, our group also drew an analogy to the caduceus and the the meaning that if you looked upon it, you'd be healed, that help was there for mm -hmm. you, mm -hmm. and that that wasn't necessarily a co coincidence. And that connection had not been made until learning this today. Yeah, it's really, I think it's just remarkable when you think about it in this context and then put it together with what Jesus said about him being like that, that the real message here is not the mechanism. The real message here is that God will make a mechanism, period, the end, no matter what, he will find a way to make a mechanism to heal us if we will just turn to him. That's awesome. This is the best part of my week. Hey, yeah, I wanted to, <laughs> Me too. I want to mention something. As you know, in some, in some of what I write or talk about, <laughs> you know, uh, coming back to, uh, you know, the devil, Satan, whatever, you know, I'm sure he, he's very much okay with us uh, uh, kind of minimizing him, you know, people dressing up as little devils with horns, you know, at Halloween and stuff like that, because that allows him to uh, have a greater uh, uh, kind of a, 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 an easier way to sneak in to our lives. Uh, because I think it's only when you respect that that can have that, he was an angel of light. He can still uh, put on that show. God didn't take that away from him. He can still dress up like that. And you always have to be on guard for that and respect that. 
And that helps you, I believe, to look at things and, and really discern or take a minute and say, hmm, well, that looks right, but is it really right? Yeah, I think that you're exactly right there. Um, and I think that this is what the Lord is trying to teach the Israelites is, is to always draw close to him. That it, the closer you are in the cleft of that rock inside the Lord, the, the straighter and truer you are. The closer you are to the Lord, the less evil there is, right? Um, that's what we're learning here. And so when you see evil, you recognize evil, you know, like Ross is talking about. Um, and you're right there where the protection is. So I, I, I really want us to get a sense for how important it is to go through that birth process of your spirit and to grow and strengthen and use <laughs> that, that, very, that interior gift of the Holy Spirit that we all have available to us. It's something, though, that is like a muscle. You have to exercise it. You have to build it and learn about it and live with it and get to know it. And, and, and it's nothing magic. It's getting to hear to where you can hear the voice of the spirit is as easy as learning to hear your mother's voice while you're still in the womb. And, and you may simple have said this. proximity. I'm sorry. You may have said this before. Uh, you know, fear of the Lord is a, should be a driving force for you to to know, to learn more about His ways. It's not necessarily you know literal fear. It's it's striving to know more about His ways in Him. Yes, it's a it's a real fear of the Lord is a realization of how big He really is. And how connected we really are to him. The awe. Yeah. The awe of understand understanding his awesomeness. That he is yeah. so Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. And I think, you know, what you said about um if evil, no matter how good or powerful it seems, it's a counterfeit. And you know, the closer we are to the truth, the more we can recognize the counterfeit they don't teach people who are spotting counterfeit bills what counterfeit bills look like they teach them what the real bill looks like they know that hundred dollar bill the twenty dollar bill whatever so intimately that they can look at one that isn't it and spot it spot the difference well and it's more and than that it's we have that intimate knowledge of god if we're growing closer to him and we are getting that intimate knowledge of him, we can recognize it when it's not him. That's exactly right. And many of you know that my, my former career was as a bank executive. And one of the things that the tellers would tell us is that they could tell by the feel. They didn't even have to look at it. They could, they could be flipping through that money and they could tell by the feel that that was a counterfeit. That's what we're aiming for. I think that's a great analogy, wow. Shirley. Um, and the other corollary to it 
is that the closer we are to to this holiness and this and who the Lord is, and the more aware and intimate we are with that, the less likely it is that we will step out in our own power to try to fix something. Why would we do that when God is right there? God can fix it. God can fix that other person. I don't need to fix that other person. God does. That's God's job. No. My job is to know God's voice, to be right there, to make sure that I've got, whether it's fasting or whatever it is that needs to drive me to the Lord every single day that I'm doing that and that I'm simply listening for what it is that he has for me that day. And I can tell you that it had never been to set somebody straight. Not, oh, not even dude, in love. I've been doing that with my son. <laughs> my oldest son, he's got a little wacko on me. <laughs> well, you know that I have a I do have a an incisive tongue. I will say things, you know, but um <laughs> but I'm not going to um you're not going to hammer people. I'm not going to judge. I'm not going to be their judge. I, I I will say what the Lord gives me to say. And sometimes I say things I shouldn't say, you know, that's not like I'm perfect yeah. or anything. I'm working but, on that. But it's not, it's not mine, you know, so I, I try to be really careful um, and simply see my job as, as, as kind of more like the John the Baptist job of, of making the rough places mm. smoother for people and pointing them towards God. And that, boy, I never even realized that. Golly, y'all, I might cry here. Because when I was young, when I was in college, um, someone that I, that I knew was praying for me. And um, in, it was in a group setting. And the, the person had um, a vision or an impression or something. And, and she said, you know, Gail, what came to my mind was an evangelist, which of course is what John was, um, and and I and I was horrified actually because I am an introvert and I there was no way I was going to be out on the street handing out pamphlets and witnessing to people. wasn't going to ever happen. But but um, but she followed it up by saying, and in my in the picture in my mind, what I saw was someone who had a sword. You had a sword in one hand and healing oil in the other. And that has so described my walk in ministry in the Lord. That's what an evangelist is. That's what John the Baptist did. I just never made the connection with John the Baptist till just this very moment. So that gives me goosebumps. That's cool. I got to go. Bye. Bye, y'all. Love you. Bye. I need to go, too. Bye. Talk to you later. Next week.